0: Lucas Cranach was a fascinating Reformation figure. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther, and in fact, he painted one of the most famous portraits of Martin Luther. Another one of his most famous paintings was The Fountain of Youth. As far back as the 1500s, The Fountain of Youth was something people were really interested, like um, Juan Ponce de Leon. He wanted to find The Fountain of Youth. He found himself uh, there in 1513 in Florida looking for it. Did he find it? No, he didn't. He didn't find the Fountain of Youth, and nobody has found the lost city of Atlantis, nor D.B. Cooper. You remember D.B. Cooper back in 1971? He was uh, famous for having stolen $200,000 and escaping out of a a plane. Some people think that he died on the way down. Others think that he escaped. There's been several people that have claimed that they are D.B. Cooper but have been um, shown to be false. Um, I mean, all of these things, uh, no one really knows where they are or if they exist. Uh, some of them, we think, are we're pretty confident don't exist. Um, there's all kinds of mysteries. Mysteries abound in this world, but... One thing that we shouldn't have as a mystery is which church is God's church. And I don't think that it needs to be a mystery. God gave us some clues to help us understand where we should be looking and how we should be looking and what kind of points there are that would help us understand for sure that this is God's group of Christians that He wants us to be around. But a lot of people, they have no idea which direction to, to look. Some people, they choose a church because it's a good fit for their family, right? Their, their kids like going to church, and so that must be a good church to go to. I mean, it kind of makes sense. If Surely it's a good idea if your kids want to go. that must be a good place, right? Other people think that going to churches um, is about a personal convenience, um, personal preference. It's the worship style. Um, but... Has God given us a specific worship style, divinely ordained structure of liturgy that once we see this perfect liturgy, that's the right church? Or is there something else? Is there something deeper that God has given? Some people say, I don't like organized religion, which is kind of a funny thing to say. Do they not like organized banking? Would they rather disorganized? Um, Maybe... um, would they prefer a disorganized military? That, that would be a good thing, don't you think? Uh, if, if you had, I mean, why, why is it that we want a disorganized religion? It's not really a rational thinking, but, but it seems maybe it's because of the confusion that we talked about the other night when we discussed the fall of Babylon. Maybe it's because in the Reformation, we had all these churches, this huge number of churches begin to grow. We've got hundreds and hundreds of denominations in, in the United States alone. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of Baptist denominations just by themselves. How do you know what's the right church? And, and maybe it's because of the confusion that people just say, you know what, this organized religion thing isn't for me. It also might be because Babylon, that great city, the mother of harlots, has caused so many problems throughout history. Why would we have organized religion that persecutes people. That's not nice. And so I can see why some people would say, I don't want organized religion. I can understand it, um, but it's still not rational. God, He's not a God of disorder. He's not a God of confusion. So let's do a little digging and, and figure out what it is, what the church of God Now, Jesus, he was clear that he believed in a church, not just a church, but his church. Uh, He talked to Peter, and he says, you, Peter, are Petros, a stone, a a rock. Uh, But then he says, upon this rock, talking about himself, I will build my church. He's got a clear conception of an organization. And that, that word church literally means gathering of people. It's not a building with a steeple. Uh, you've done the thing with your hands, um, where the, there, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and hear all the people, you know that one. It's, it's not the building that's the church, it's the people that are the church. And so, uh, God clearly believes that there's an organization of people that, that He calls His church, His people, His group. So, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is seen addressing seven churches. He's walking among these candlesticks, and John says that they are the seven churches. Uh, and then it, there are specific churches that he's, he's um, uh, talking to. Now, in, in that case, were they perfect churches? Jesus called them his church, but if you look in each of those stories, all but one or so, they are perfect faulty. They've got problems. And, and he'll say, I have something against you. And, but but he, doesn't, he doesn't reject them because they've got a problem in them. How many churches, if they're made up of people, do you think are perfect? How many people are perfect? None. And so no church is going to be perfect. But God still has a church. Let's look at some of these characteristics in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul describes God's church in, in this letter to Timothy. He says that the church would be the pillar and ground of truth. It's the thing that, that holds it up in the world, that, that is the foundation of it, that communicates truth to the world. In Revelation 12.1, we read about God's church. And we talked about this um, the other night when we compared the woman in Revelation 12 to the re- woman in Revelation 17. And the woman in Revelation 17 was this harlot, the mother of harlots, on her forehead was Babylon the Great. But, but in Revelation 12, we see a very different kind of church. We see a woman that, in, according to verse 1, says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. This is a word picture describing the characteristics of God's church. It's God's church down through time. Verse 6 adds, This is the woman that fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. That's the same 1,260 days that the first nation in Revelation 13 persecuted God's church, Uh, the, the, the beast there in Revelation 13. It, it drove the church into the wilderness. And what, what did we discuss about water and wilderness or water and land? What, what's the significance of those figures in prophecy? What is water in prophecy? People, nations, tribes. So what would be the wilderness or the land be in contrast? Desolate, not, no place, a small population. And so the they're driven into the wilderness, and there's that 1260-year period. And for that period, you have uh, persecution from 538 to 1798. And so, even during that period of time, God's got a church. He, he has a false apostate Babylon church that is rejecting God Um, And that's the one that everybody sees as the Christian church. But then there's this thing, driven to the wilderness, this group of people that still follow God and still are His people. The true Christians, Bible-believing Christians, have been persecuted frequently through time. Uh, In fact, you read stories about the the Valdo, the Waldensians, or the Albigenses. There's a fascinating story about the Albigenses, Uh, the... Uh, the, the church put together these wars, and they called them the Crusades. And they, were, they did a lot of different things. One of the things they did is they, they went down to, to Jerusalem, and they freed it from the, the Turks or the, the, the Muslims down there at the time. And that was, you know, that happened. But now they've got this whole group of, of soldiers, and uh, the church thought, well, let me do something different with that. And so it began to persecute and pursue and destroy anybody who disagreed with the church. And so the Albigenses were some of those people. And in one town, this is in, in northern Italy, southern France area, they kind of mingle together there in the mountains. And uh, in, in one town, there was Albigenses, really nice people. They loved God. They had the Bible in the, their own language, which was something that wasn't supposed to happen. The church didn't want the Bible in their language. They only wanted it in Latin, that was it. And uh, so it's, it's, they have the Bible in their language and they, they have rejected some of the traditions of the, the church. And so this mother church takes soldiers, sends them to one of these towns that uh, a bunch of Albigenses were living in. They happened to be living Im- among some other Catholics and, and they, they were living happily together. They liked each other, they were neighbors, they were friends, they were relatives in many cases. And, and, and they had kind of a wall around the town. The soldiers came up to the town and one of the lieutenants turned to the, the general and uh, said, what do we do? The general calls for the Catholics to send out the, the um, Albigenses and, and they refused because they were friends. And so the general turns to the lieutenant and says, kill them all. The Lord will decide. Which one are his? There's terrible persecution. Many were burned at the stake. Others were um, torn limb from limb. Just horrible things. They, they would have a, a um, father, and they would parade his children in front of him, and they would say, renounce your faith in, in uh, you know, renounce your, your belief in the Bible. Give up this false heresy that they would call it. Um, or else will kill your family. And then they would proceed to do so. How hard that would be to say yes to God in the face of those circumstances, and yet many did. It was a time uh, in, in, in this, some people call it the dark ages, others the middle ages, but there's there is a growing falsehood in the church. Things would kind of pile on top of each other. One idea would lead to another false idea, which lead to another doctrine of men, another um, theory of demons, really. And, uh, and all during this time, you had people that, not following God, were also not bound by conscience in the same way that God's Word would have us be. And so they were padding their pockets by, by toying with men's souls. They would say, give us some money and we'll give you a pardon. Give us some money and we'll get your your relative or your friend out of purgatory, patting their pockets um, with spiritual manipulation. The Bible's truths were crowded out by corruption and apostasy. And there's a number of false teachings that came in, in this time, we've talked about many of them, infant baptism. Transubstantiation, I mentioned that one the other night, where the, the priest supposedly has power to call God off of His throne, to come down onto their altar, and to die again. While the Bible says Christ died, how many times? Once for all, not over and over and over again every time they do the Mass. Another one, naturally, natural immortality of the soul. Of course, the Bible says at the very beginning, that is a deception of Satan. Thou shalt not surely die. The truth comes from God. In the day you eat of it, you shall die. The error comes from Satan. And yet that, was, that, that error from Satan was preached as, as gospel truth from the pulpits of the church. And, and then another one, confession to the priest. Jesus is our priest. He is our high priest. He says that, that um, the this Holy Spirit mingles his words with our prayers and makes them sweet-smelling savor to God. He, he says that we can approach the throne of God by his grace directly without anything in between. We don't need priests, we don't need saints, we don't need Mary. We have a direct pathway to the throne of God through Jesus. And, and anything that would put barriers between us and God is false. And, and then you have, of course, Sunday worship. There's, I lived in, in um, Maryland. I just forgot the name of the town. Hagerstown. I lived in Hagerstown, Maryland for a while, and there is this, uh, Maryland is a, a pretty Catholic uh, area, and so sometimes you'd see these signs, and uh, if you're driving towards Seattle on the 90 you'll see there's a sign that says something about salvation and John 3.16, and it's a very um, religious sign. Well, if you find a religious sign in Maryland, it's more than likely uh, from the Catholic Church. And this particular sign, huge, huge billboard, and it said, Worship Sundays, and then the local diocese. Each one of these truths uh, was shared as though it was the stuff of life, and, and yet during this time, in, in the face of all this error and all this corruption, God still had a people. He had groups of people that would continue to follow Him, in the wilderness, but following Him. And, and He needed to have a, a, a church. He needed to have this group of people. He needed to preserve them, because if He didn't, there would be, the, the light of God's Word would be snuffed out. And that wasn't going to happen. God was going to keep that throughout all time. He was going to keep his truth. You might remember the story of Elijah. And he's fleeing from, the, um, uh, from Ahab. And Elijah is complaining to God. And he's like, I'm the only one that loves you and that serves you. Everybody else is following Baal. And, and God says, no, you're not. You're not the only one. I've got 5,000 others that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. God has a people, always does, always will. And there's something about this people, especially when we look at the end of time. It's, It's not just a group of people who love Jesus, but it's a group of people who have a mission, a passion to prepare others for The things that are most significant at the end of time. What's happening at the end of time? What is the event that finishes this work on earth? Jesus' second coming. If that group of people love Jesus and understand his word, wouldn't it make sense that their focus would be preparing others for his second coming? Revelation 12, 17 says, And the dragon was wroth, or angry with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. The the dragon was wroth or angry. Who does the dragon represent in Revelation 12? The devil. It specifically says the dragon is the devil. A woman, of course, is the church. And uh, so the devil is angry with the church. And he went to make more war with this remnant. What does that word remnant mean? The, what's left. It's the what remains. Now, there is a remnant all the way through the Bible. There's remnants talked about. So, so there's uh, the remnant that came out of Babylon. It's the Israelites that remained after the Babylonian captivity. They were there for seventy years, some stayed and a remnant came back to Jerusalem. Um, it's just meaning the the, the leftovers, the remaining. Uh, that's that's all that remnant really means. The Bible describes the remnant as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Two critical identifying marks of this group of people. So the church is back in the end of time. 1798 was the last that they were in the wilderness. Now, no more wilderness. Now it's not obscurity and, and uh, hidden away. Now there's, there's something of prominence that begins to grow in God's church. Something happens that transforms it and moves it towards a worldwide stage. There's a remnant left, but there's a purpose and a mission that they are to accomplish. Now, the remnant isn't the whole. It's smaller than the whole. Some people, they would look at, um, at the church and they would take it as, as um, a large group of people. How many Christians are there in the world of all denominations? Something in the range of 1.4, 1.5 billion Christians in the world. About a billion of those are Catholics and um, quite a few more are are orthodox, and, and then something in the range of, of uh, 300 and something million are Protestant Christians of some brand or another. But Jesus has this, this statement. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. And it's not that, that um, God just says um, to all of you, come on over here, and then he says, no, I just want him, actually. Never mind. That's not, that's not how God deals with it. But it might be that God says to all of us, come over, come on over here, be part of my, my church. And, and only a few actually say yes. And that's kind of the idea there. A few say yes. When the world follows the beast, the idea is that the whole world wanders after the beast. But there's a few. God says to his people, come out of her. And there, so there's a few that actually say yes. And those few he calls his remnant. He calls the, the leftovers, the remaining, um, what is left. But the question is, how do you find this church? What are the identifying marks? How do we know that this is the remnant, this is God's group of people at the end of time versus something else? So let's uh, nail this down. First of all, in uh, Revelation 12:17, the remnant keep the commandments of God. That's, that's important. They keep the commandments of God, which um, should probably go without saying. It should be obvious that God's people actually do what He says. It's not like this is something that they do because they're going to be saved by doing what God says. Except, I guess you kind of are, aren't you? He says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you don't believe, will you be saved? No. So, obedience is, is important. We do need to believe. And, and when we believe, we're saved by His grace, not by anything we can do. No righteousness that we can come up with will be good enough to get us into heaven because even one rebellion from God is us separating ourselves from the source of life. It is sin is death. And by God's mercy and grace, He keeps us and gives us more and more and more choices more and more opportunities to say yes to him, only, only by his grace. It's not by keeping the Ten Commandments that we're saved, but if we love Jesus, won't we obey him? He even says so. When you love somebody, you want to please them. If you love your spouse, you do things that please them. If you love your children, you really enjoy to do things that please them. And the same is true for God. When we see Jesus giving everything for us, dying on the cross, giving his very life for our lives, we can't but help be to be drawn to him. Our hearts are are pulled by his love. The Bible says, "We love because he first loved us." And and then, as a response, we can say, "Lord, not my will, but yours be done." And that's that's the natural heart response. Our hearts filled with the love of God will want to do god's will david said i delight to do your will yea thy law is within my heart and that's that was the seal of god's people remember the seal of god that we talked about it's the law in our hearts god's law written in our minds so God has a people at the end of time who love Him, and as a result, who keep His commandments. But there's another component to this. They proclaim the everlasting gospel. If you look at Revelation 14.6, as we've done several times, it begins with this idea, um, the the everlasting gospel. The angel in the midst of heaven cries with a loud voice, and he says, he says, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. And the Bible says that's the everlasting gospel. And, and where should that gospel go? It says to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This is significant. The gospel is to go not to a few people here and there. The gospel is to go to the whole world. And that's important because at the end of time, you have only two groups of people, those who follow God and those who reject God. And if God is to be fair, he needs to give everybody ample opportunity to choose. What do you need in order to choose but knowledge, information, right? You need to be able to understand what your choices are and make an intelligent decision. If the gospel doesn't go to the world, if it doesn't go to every tribe, nation, tongue, and people, then those people won't get the opportunity to make a choice and the, the, the only thing they're left with is some default, whatever they were in the midst of before. They, they won't know the truth and so they can't choose the truth. And if that's the case, then God isn't, God isn't being very nice and, and the world would be able to have words with God and say that wasn't fair, you did the wrong thing there when Jesus came without people having the choice. And so the, this group of people has a mission. It's not just a a church that's there praising God, but it's a church with a mission, and the mission is to take the gospel to the entire world. So the, the other aspect of that is not only are they taking the gospel, but they're taking it to the world. They, this needs to be not just a little, a little rinky-dink church in, in the, the backyard community of some small town in, in Idaho, right? No offense to any rinky-dink small town church, they're wonderful, but but it can't just be a congregationalist church in some small space or even, even one of those multi-campus churches. Um, I I sometimes enjoy listening to a pastor of a Presbyterian church. Uh, He has some interesting sermons and ideas and different things and, and he has a multi-site church and and I think there's five or six campuses. He preaches at, at one campus and they have a video camera and then all the other campuses see him on the screen. And so they, they, they have multi-site church. And that, that's getting to be a big church. They've got thousands and thousands of people that go there. But, but that church is physically incapable of taking the gospel to the world. So this church needs to have a worldwide impact and a worldwide presence if it's going to fit into this end-time remnant church description the Bible gives. Now remember, the, the remnant church, it begins... It begins to come up out of the wilderness in 1798. And, and then by the time that Jesus comes, it will have impacted the entire world. Do you see how that works? So we're not talking about uh, an instantaneous thing, but, but it's definitely a church that develops into a worldwide impact. Revelation 12, 17 also says, The dragon was wroth with the woman went to make war with the remnant of her seed, and... They keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And the second aspect, having the testimony of Jesus Christ, is is significant. Um, But we need to understand what it means. And I shouldn't tell you what it means, because that would just be my opinion. We should get the answer from where? From the Bible. Okay, so let's go to Revelation 19.10. And in in this passage, I put it on the whole... Uh, verse in your handout, if you want to read the context, but john is he, he falls down as though he 's bowing in front of an angel, and the angel says don 't do that because i 'm one of your fellow servants, the prophets and and who have the testimony of Jesus and then he says clearly, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy so when when revelation um, fourteen twelve seventeen rather when revelation twelve seventeen says that the the remnant have the testimony of Jesus. It's saying that they have the, the gift of prophecy given by God's Spirit. So we look at this list, keeps the commandments of God, proclaims the everlasting gospel, worldwide impact and presence, testimony of Jesus, um, and, and this gift of prophecy thing. Um, we, we really need to understand, especially this idea of gift of prophecy because there's some really weird ideas out there. I mean, there's... Um, nostradamus did he have the gift of prophecy uh, what about gene dixon or about the tabloids there's all kinds of prophecies in those tabloids i had a, a neighbor down the road from me when i was growing up in Cleeton, kentucky and wonderful guy but the poor poor man would go to the store and he would pick up the tabloid and that was his source of news and truth that's where he discovered what was really going on. And he was afraid of everything. He was afraid of, of UFOs and he was afraid of uh, the, I don't know, just everything. Uh, seemed like conspiracies everywhere to him. And so I, those, the tabloids don't have the gift of prophecy. Um, how do you identify? How do you know if somebody really has the gift of prophecy? I mean, is it that guy down the street? Uh, that, uh, that, that claims to have prophecy. You know, he, he walks into church one Sunday morning and, and, uh, and he says, I have a prophecy from God. Does he have the gift of prophecy? How do we know? Hmm. Does the Bible tell us how we can know? There are specific things that we can find in the Bible. In fact, uh, in, in, in the New Testament, Jesus said, beware of false prophets, and if Jesus says, beware of false prophets, the implication is that there are what kind of prophets? True prophets. You, you can't have a false unless you have its opposite. The false is a, it's an alternative to something. So there's a true prophet, uh, a true gift of prophecy in Jesus' mind. So we really need to understand what are, the, what are the components that would help us understand who is a prophet, who has this gift. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, we find that Uh, this verse, and God has appointed these in the church. And that phrase in the church is significant. It's not just God has given this randomly somewhere. And we're talking about in a specific context, for the benefit of, earlier he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, 10 and 11, he says that that these gifts are given uh, for the benefit of the church. It says, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and varieties of, of tongues so he gives lots of different gifts to the church but specifically in this context because we're talking about the gift of prophecy or the testimony of jesus one of the gifts of the spirit is the gift of prophecy so we need to figure out how is it that we can know if it's genuine or not first in jeremiah 28:9, um, it must be accurate not all, all prophecy is predictive. Some prophets shared messages that were exhorting people and saying, this is what you should do or shouldn't do. But, uh, but there are prophecies that are predictive. This will happen or that won't happen. Now, if, if the prophet shares something and it does happen when he says it was not going to happen, is that a true prophet? No. If, if they say something won't happen, or uh, if they they say this will happen and it doesn't happen, is that true prophecy? No, it's got to be accurate. It has to actually happen. Um, If you look at Daniel chapter 2, and Daniel predicts that there's going to be Babylon, and then there's going to be another kingdom, and there's going to be another kingdom, all these different metals on that image. And and if that didn't happen, if there were six different uh, nations that impacted the world in this area, um, rather than four, um, or if uh, Rome didn't break up into the ten um, horns or the, the ten toes of, of that uh, iron and clay mix, if, if Europe had somehow combined, would Daniel's prophecy be accurate? No. In order for it to be accurate, all those pieces had to fit. They all had to come true just as Daniel predicted they would. Uh, being accurate is one point. Another one is they have to be in harmony with the Bible. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, actually 1 through 5, I have in your, in your handout. But it, it shows the idea that if a prophet comes in, predicts something, and it even happens, they might show signs, wonderful signs. Their, their prophecy is accurate, technically, but they are, are driving you towards worshiping other gods, gods that are not the Lord God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth. Then, well, in Israel at the time, not that we should do this today, but at the time in Israel, God's law said that you should kill them because they were not God's prophets. So they need to be in harmony with the things God has already revealed in His Word. And then uh, third, they, they need to exalt Jesus in 1 John 4.2. If, if they don't claim that Jesus has come in the flesh, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, um, God himself is the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead and is in heaven pleading our beha- on our behalf right now. If, if they don't claim Jesus came in the flesh, then they're not from God. That's not a, a spirit from God. And, and there's some interesting stuff about Gnosticism and, and the false theories that were going on at, at, in John's time when he's re- sharing this idea. Um, but just this, uh, the fact that they need to support Christ there's uh, a lot of prophets that claim to replace Christ, um, and as a result, they lead people in in some um, cultic way, uh, completely away from God's Word and completely away from Christ. They are not God's prophets. And then uh, this is kind of no duh, of course it's going to be that, um, but, but we need to underscore this fact. In Isaiah 820, um, it says that the Prophets need to uphold God's law, to the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, God's law, then there's no light in them, Isaiah says. If they don't uphold the law of God, there's no light, there's no no gift of prophecy there. Now, it's fashionable today for people to say, well, we don't have to keep the commandments of God, but uh, does fashion and popularity take away from the significance of God's Word? Just because people believe something doesn't mean it's true. If it's in God's Word, that's our source of authority, not, not what people say is popular. Revelation 22 says, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life. In 1 John, uh, it says that His commandments are not grievous. It's, it's not a hard thing. It's not a grievous thing to keep God's law. So, somebody who claims to be speaking on behalf of God would also uphold his law. And then I mentioned already in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 that, that the prophets, they're a gift to the people inside the church for the benefit of the church. So, why does God even give the gift of prophecy is another question we should ask. Well, let's go back. Go back in time, way back long before we had Babylon even. Let's go back even before the, the Tower of Babel. And you have, rewind even past the flood, and you get a group of people who have rejected God, and God is going to bring punishment. And it's at this time of judgment that he needs to communicate so they can make a decision. Because remember, Jesus says, as in the time, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So if you just rewind the picture back to to Noah's time, you'll find that God was calling people to make a decision. For 120 years, he called people to make a decision. And, And these people had the option to either get on the boat or to not get on the boat. Noah was the prophet God called to help people make that decision. And then fast forward in time up till about the point of Jesus. He's 30-ish years old, and, and there's this guy that God called to be a prophet. His name was John. And John was calling the people to be prepared for Jesus' first coming. Does it make sense to you that there would be a prophet at the end of time when both judgment and Jesus' second coming were both in play? Does it make sense that God would call somebody to be a, a communicator of, of truth to the world. Seems like that would make sense. It would at least fit with the pattern. So Amos 3.7 says this, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. So God said that His remnant church, His remnant people, would have the gift of prophecy working among them. Um, so let's, let's look at a little recent history and figure out where, that is, where that's coming from. Because like I mentioned, the remnant church is coming out of the wilderness after 1798, and it's early 1800s, 1820s uh, time frame that a, a man named William Miller studied the Bible prophecies in Daniel and Revelation, and he'd made this determination. He said, Jesus is coming in 1843, and he didn't. And so they, they went back, and there was like 50,000 people that were, that were coming up with this idea and following this idea, preachers from all around the world, not just William Miller, but um, there's, there's one guy that said, we made a mistake. And, and what they had done is they, would, they had forgotten that there was no zero year, and so, so they added a year to the prophecy, and they said, 1844, Jesus is coming again, and he didn't. He, he didn't, but at, at that time... With all this confusion and all this disappointment, um, these people who were passionately searching God's word, they ended up, they ended up uncovering more and more and more things in God's word that seemed to have been ignored, up until that time. And uh, <coughs> remember, the the idea of the remnant—they would take God's truth to the end of time. They they would carry it all the way to the finish line, so to speak. And and so these are people that begin to uncover what had been covered and confused up until this time. And it's in this group of people that are searching the scriptures and trying to know what God really is wanting and what what he's really saying by these prophecies that a young lady, 17 years old, a lady named Ellen Harmon, she began receiving dreams from God. And and there were dreams they didn't set the course for this group of people, the Bible set the course, but they were dreams that helped to clarify things that had up until that time been a little more confusing and 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 confirm things that they had just discovered. And as a result of God working through this young woman, um, the, the Bible just began to open up to these people. And over the course of the next seventy years, she God shared wisdom through this woman. There are more than a hundred books and, and compilations from her writings that have been put together over the years. She's one of the most prolific uh, female authors in, uh, in history. She's the most translated female author into other languages. Of, and uh, some of her books are uh, some of the most w- read books on the subjects, like The Desire of Ages on the Life of Christ or Steps to Christ on the Subject of Salvation, which is one of my favorites. And I think probably one of the best books for helping people understand what it means to begin and and grow a relationship with Christ. She wrote about the life of Christ. She wrote about the parables of Jesus. She wrote a lot of letters and articles to people, encouraging them and guiding them. Sometimes she even said harsh things to people in power, which uh, prophets tended to do throughout the Bible. If you've ever read uh, things that Isaiah and Jeremiah said. Sometimes they said things that would even get them hurt, and in in some cases, um, Ellen White was uh, uh, exiled or um, challenged uh, because of some of the things that she said because she called people to righteousness and to follow God with all their hearts. She wrote a book called The Ministry of Healing, and uh, many other articles and and, uh, even some books on the subject of nutrition and hygiene and mental health and the mind-body connection. One guy, um, well, uh, just before I mention him, there's, uh, there's a lot of studies that have been done recently about smoking, and it, it was in, it seems like it's been in, in just the last, maybe 50 years or so, that we've had really strong warnings against smoking. And, and really in the last 20, that we've made some significant strides in reducing the um, smoking in, in the United States. Uh, and, and in her time, Doctors were prescribing tobacco and smoking for dealing with lung problems. And Ellen White said, tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. She was not in in favor of tobacco of any kind. A nutritionist from Cornell University, Dr. Clive McKay, said this, whatever may be the religious belief of a reader, he or she cannot help but gain much guidance in a better and healthier way of life from reading the major works of Ellen G. White. Every modern specialist in nutrition whose life is dedicated to human welfare must be impressed by the writings and leadership of Ellen White. Now, that was in 1969 that he wrote that, but, uh, and, and you might think, well, we've, we've come so far since 1969 in health, uh, in understanding health. You know, I've, I've seen in just my short 30 or so years of life, I've seen patterns, waves of, of theories about health. And, and all these different nutritions and diets and, and suggestions that people have. And it seems like it keeps kind of coming back. The research will point in one direction for a little while. And then after people have messed up their lives a bit on that direction, um, the research will demonstrate that was a bad idea. And they'll come back to the things that Ellen White said over 100 years ago. And she was literally 100 years ahead of her time when it came to health research. And, and her ministry has helped thousands around the planet to better understand God's design for our bodies and health, as well as God's truth in his word. Now, to be clear, we're not talking, when we talk about prophets, we're not talking about replacing God's word. First of all, prophets stand on what God has already said in the past. Read the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and that's your foundation. They're the, they're the source stuff. Everything that's written in the Bible after that is referencing back to what God revealed already. And usually it's because the people weren't listening to what he already revealed that he gave them a prophet to help them understand how to deal with those things that he's already said in their present situation. And I think that's kind of the issue when we come to the the writings of Ellen White. We had a, a middle ages of darkness and coming out of that darkness... We needed needed a, uh, a little bit of guidance from God and through His Spirit in order to uncover the darkness and explore the light. So God's last day church, we talked about them keeping the commandments of God, proclaiming the everlasting gospel. They were a worldwide movement, and they have the gift of prophecy. These are some of the identifying marks. Revelation 18.1 says, After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons. A prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Dramatic indictments against this falsehood um, on the planet in earth's last days. But verse 4 in Revelation 18 adds this. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. This is a... uh, reference to the same, the same story that was being told in Revelation 14, the everlasting gospel that's preached in all the world to every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue, and people, right? Now in Revelation 18, we have this same message repeated kind of in a compact form. And, and who is it that gives that message but God's remnant people? And so one of the identifying marks of God's remnant people is that they take the everlasting gospel to the world and they call the world to come out of Babylon to keep the commandments of Jesus and have the faith of Jesus. So, they keep the commandments of God. They proclaim the everlasting gospel. They they're, uh, have a worldwide impact. They have the gift, gift of prophecy, and they call the, the, the world to come out of Babylon. Now, does that mean that what I'm saying is that only people who go to my church are saved or will be in heaven? No, of course not. But what I can tell you is that God wants us to be guided by His Spirit and by truth. He wants us to be in a safe place that follows the Bible. He wants us to be among like-minded people who put God's Word first and and are willing to be taught by His Spirit and and that our loving Jesus soon return. In Proverbs 4.18, it tells us, The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. Christ, he calls his people to come out of Babylon, um, but, but that, that's something, it, it grows over time. You might remember, there is a lot of confusion back in the Middle Ages, and one piece at a time, God kept adding truth. Martin Luther brings one bit of truth out of the Bible. We are saved by grace through faith, and it's a mind-blowing, amazing new truth that people were just discovering there. Now, Luther, he, he brought out all kinds of good stuff from the Bible, and he was not planning on leaving the Catholic Church. That was not his goal. He was a priest, and he loved his church. But in the end, he did leave the church because the church refused to reform when he brought his 95 theses to the, to the Wittenberg uh, castle door. There's no change he brought up the corruption, he brought up, brought up the falsehoods, no change. And so he left, and so did many of his followers, and they became Lutherans. Uh, in the end, he died, and they stopped searching the Scriptures. They stopped exploring to know more, and they, they kind of stagnated where Luther left off. And then you have John Calvin, and Calvin, he brought some more truths out of God's Word, and, uh, and he didn't have everything right, but there was some good stuff that he added to the picture, and and his followers came as far as he came and then they stopped and then you have Zwingli and they went as far as Zwingli would go and they stopped and then you've got Knox and Wesley and all these others and and each time new truth was was brought out of the scriptures and each time the people that followed those men stopped where those men had stopped and they didn't pursue it further and so you have a wide variety of churches that are out there lots of different ideas on what the Bible says and you wonder but how, why don't they know this? And why haven't they seen that? And, and the reality is they haven't been looking. They stopped looking when the founders stopped looking. But this idea, truth, is progressive. God was working through Luther. He was working through Calvin. He was work, working through Knox and through Wesley and all these others to, to open up the, the windows of heaven and shine his light onto our world. And then there's William Miller, and he alerted the world that Jesus is coming back soon, and, and that was exciting. That was a new thing that people hadn't really heard before, and, and then you have this group of people that begin uncovering even more truth. They start to say, wait, why don't we keep the whole commandments of God? Why only nine? Let, let's keep all ten, um, and then they say, wait a second. The Bible doesn't say that we're going to burn in hell forever, and, and there's no immortal soul either, and all these things started just pouring out of God's Word as they as they opened it up and said, Lord, show us your truth. And from this discovery became a, a, a church. A church began to be formed, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is significant. Just the name is kind of a fulfillment of prophecy, you might say. The, the, the first part, Seventh-day, highlights God's beautiful truth in the Sabbath and his commandment-keeping uh, people, that, that, that this group is a group of people that says we're going to follow all of God's commandments. We love God so much that we're going to obey him. But then it says Adventist, and Adventist is tied to the second coming, the second advent of Christ. And so we're not just seventh day people, people that keep the commandments of God, but we're people that are looking forward to the second coming of Christ and warning the world about the judgment to come and God's mercy in the process that, that they can be saved too. We're a group of people that says, come out of her, my people. And when you compare the Bible teachings to all the different churches out there, there's really no other church that fits God's end-time remnant uh, descriptions of a church than the Seventh-day Adventist church. There are people in other churches that keep the Sabbath, but they don't understand that Jesus is coming soon, there are people that understand Jesus is coming soon, but they they 've kind of rejected um, some very basic principles of how god 's created us and and, and so they, they think that God is going to be destroying people in hell forever and that, that uh, and that the the soul is immortal and they, they just believe all kinds of falsehoods that just aren 't true to find a church that keeps the commandments of God that has the gift of prophecy that that is willing to uncover all the truth in God's Word and follow it wherever Jesus takes them, um, really, there's only one church that's out there. When the pilgrims were about to leave the Netherlands, as they were journeying to the New World, their pastor stayed behind. His name was John Robinson. And he said something as they knelt together on the sands of the beach, and, uh, and they were praying and, and uh, sending everybody off, and he said this, I charge you before God that you follow me nor, no farther than you have seen me follow Christ. For I am verily persuaded the Lord hath more truth and light yet to break forth from his holy word. Many churches come to a point where they say, this is the truth and no farther, no other, nothing else could be, could be revealed. And, and we get into a really bad place when we say that. And so the Seventh-day Adventist Church has decided not to establish a creed that defines what truth absolutely is. We have some guiding principles, and we, and we have some foundational things that we understand, but, but we're not opposed to exploring the Bible more and letting God's Word tell us what truth is rather than us telling God's Word what truth is. Keep pressing on is the idea. John was telling them, you've got to keep learning Pastor Robinson says there's more God wants to teach you. And that's the reality for each of us today. Uh, it's a reality for the remnant, but it's, it's a reality for each one of us. God wants to teach us. He wants to put the seal of God in our foreheads, his, his law in our hearts. And, and that, might, that means that his truth is shining brighter and brighter and brighter into our hearts. And he's just saying, won't you follow me? Won't you say yes to me? He calls us to grow in his advancing light. The, the reality is that there are people that aren't in the remnant church right now that are God's people. In fact, uh, Jesus said, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. But he wants to, you see that he, he says, I must bring them. He wants to gather his sheep together. He's got a purpose for his people at the end of time, and he's leading his people back to the Bible. There's no accident that we're covering these subjects and talking about what we're talking about in prophecy. God has revealed these things to us, and it's our mission to share them with the world. It's what He's called us to do. And I want to give you the opportunity, and maybe you've been in this remnant movement for years, and and it's stagnated in your heart. You kind of have come to know what truth is, and you're good with that. Don't, don't stay there. Let the Word of God continually bring new light to your heart, because even if you know, quote-unquote, the truth, there's no relationship that doesn't continue to grow or begin to stagnate you never have a, a stationary part, a point in a relationship. And, and our spiritual walk with God is a relationship and it needs, it needs renewal and revitalization. And so stay, stay soft and tender towards God's word. Let him continue to reveal things to you from, from the Bible. Jesus died for you. He rose for you and he's coming back for you. He wants each one of us And maybe I could add one more point to this. There is a need for God's people to stand up, not just to me being up here and sharing truth, but there's a need for God's people to stand up and and take that gospel to the world in a personal way, witnessing and sharing God's truth, sharing God's great love with the people that you know. He's given you a missionary field and called you to be a missionary too. Won't you accept that call?